You're listening to Quantum Harry the Podcast, a podcast version of the book Quantum Harry, A Unified Theory of the Potterverse by B.L. Purdom. Episode 36, Chariots of Justice. This is the conclusion to a two-episode arc about tarot symbolism in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Last time I began to examine the cards in the tarot major arcana whose images can help to illuminate J.K. Rowling's narrative choices in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, specifically looking at the cards of the third vertical column in our 3x7 grid of tarot major arcana cards, since the third column is the one that aligns with the third book in the series. So if you missed episode 35, you should go back. Anytime you want to listen or re-listen to any episode, just go to the Quantum Harry Twitter page, at QHPodcast, and click on the link in the pinned tweet to go to the Quantum Harry episode guide, which has links to all of the episodes in audio and video formats, plus links to blog posts related to some of the episodes. There are also images of the tarot cards on the Quantum Harry blog, my Instagram account, the Quantum Harry Pinterest board, and the Quantum Harry Facebook group. And when the video version of this episode is posted on YouTube, you'll be able to see all of the images I'm talking about in the video. Having looked at the cards of the third column last time, the Empress, card number 3, the Wheel of Fortune, card number 10, and the Star, card number 17, plus the cards numerically linked to these cards, in this episode I'll focus on the sequential cards for book 3, which is to say the cards numbered 7, 8, and 9, the Chariot, Justice, and the Hermit plus, once again, any cards numerically linked to these cards. The Chariot, Justice, and Hermit are the sequential cards for this book because they are the third set of three as we move through the 21 cards in our grid. The first three, one, two, and three, were the sequential cards for the first book, and the second three, four, five, and six, were the sequential cards for the second. I'll also be talking about the Horcrux that aligns with the Prisoner of Azkaban, and how the imagery on the tarot cards linked to this book, the column cards, sequential cards, and the cards linked to those cards, can help to illuminate the link between the Horcrux aligned with the third book and the defense against the dark arts teacher in this book, Remus Lupin, as well as five other alignments in the three central books of the series, Prisoner of Azkaban, Goblet of Fire, and Order of the Phoenix. The first seven cards of the Tarot Major Arcana depict age-old archetypes, and with one exception, each aligns with a gender or age archetype, the wise old man, the maiden, the father, etc., plus the ageless and genderless liminal being. The only card in the first seven that doesn't align with one of these archetypes has for its only numerically linked card a tarot archetype that does align with the remaining missing archetype as if those two are interchangeable, which they basically are. This is the reason that in episodes 2 through 9 I addressed these mythic archetypes in the order that I did, in addition to this order just happening to neatly align with the ruling archetypes for each of the seven Harry Potter books. In other words, each book aligns with a mythic archetype that has an equivalent in the first seven cards of the Tarot Major Arcana, in the exact same order. I am highly doubtful that this is a coincidence. 
And I believe that it is very likely that J.K. Rowling intentionally inserted tarot imagery and symbolism in the series in a specific structural way. Since the tarot was originally created for playing games, this once again ties in with the overarching theme of her seven book series. Games, toys, sweets, fairy tales, and childhood in general, meshing perfectly with her hero not only being a child, but with Harry's chief enemy being contemptuous of him, specifically because he is a child. As I talked about in episode one, The Kid's Table. The first seven cards of the Tarot Major Arcana, or the top row in our grid of 21 cards, is called The Realm of the Gods. Prisoner of Azkaban is the first Harry Potter book in which Harry is not rescued by a deus ex machina at the climax, which I talk about in episode 13, Deus Ex Machina. But since the first of the three sequential cards for this book, the Chariot, comes from the Realm of the Gods, the last of the first seven cards, there's one more deus ex machina that helps Harry in this book, though it's not during the climax. This god from the machine seems very clearly linked to the chariot card, just as the flying forward Anglia was in the second book, when the chariot card was linked numerically to the card at the bottom of the second column, the lightning-struck tower. When Harry is on the run in Prisoner of Azkaban, the night bus just shows up out of the blue, sparing Harry having to fly on his broom to run away from Privet Drive. He doesn't expect it, he doesn't even know that this exists, and he doesn't knowingly summon it. Nightbus appearances in later books don't carry the deus ex machina vibe of its debut. However, as a liminal being and an axis mundi, a link between worlds, this chariot is the most appropriate transportation for Harry to use in this situation. As I talked about in episodes 8 and 9, Harry, a metaphorically queer liminal being, like many literally queer youth, has left home and is in danger of being homeless specifically because of his difference from his family and their subsequent rejection of him. This also happens to Sirius, another metaphorically queer liminal being, when he's young, though the difference between him and his family is that he's not a blood supremacist, rather than the difference between Harry and the Dursleys, that he is magical and they are not. Many versions of the chariot card show two horses pulling the chariot, a red one and a blue one. If you combine these colors, you get purple, which is the color of the night bus. Other cards show two sphinxes pulling the chariot instead, one white and one black. This is a visual presentation of the same theme. The creatures of different colors represent the chariot being pulled in opposite directions, and the driver must balance and reconcile these opposing forces, guiding the vehicle magically. And, as I've mentioned before, the chariot driver doesn't hold reins, but a wand, like the magician, the card at the beginning of the Realm of the Gods. And, like the moon card, the chariot is connected to the sign of Cancer, which is all about home. The chariot's destination is, ultimately, home. In Chamber of Secrets, Harry flew in the Ford Anglia, a symbolic chariot, to two of his emotional homes, the Burrow and Hogwarts. In addition to bridging worlds and reconciling opposing forces, which is what liminal beings do, another theme connected to this card is a journey home, which may be a new, chosen home, and discovering your true self by learning about where you came from, like Harry in Prisoner of Azkaban, when he learns about the Marauder's backstory. These themes mesh with the mythic archetype linked to this card, 
the metaphorically queer liminal being, and to the color purple, the color of the night bus, which happens to be an emblematic color in the LGBTQ community. Harry, a metaphorically queer liminal being, is treated as a pariah in his own home, but after he is outed and learns about his true self, he goes to his spiritual home to live with a chosen family. Another meaning attached to the chariot card that's kind of a no-brainer is travel. Travel and transportation are key themes in this book. Harry's first experience of Dementors is while he's traveling on the Hogwarts Express. He's later convinced that he must learn to fight Dementors to play Quidditch, his usual mock war, which is played on brooms, a mode of transportation. The night bus and the Hogwarts Express are both virtual chariots, taking Harry home, the bus going to the Wizarding World in general, and the train to Hogwarts. When he arrives at Hogwarts, Harry encounters so-called horseless carriages for the first time, which are really pulled by Thestrals, skeletal-winged horses that are invisible to most people, including Harry in his third year. Having flown to school in the second book, he didn't previously see these carriages, which, like the tarot chariot, do not require a driver to steer them with reins. The eerie Thestrals Harry sees two books later are there, however, and these creatures combine black and white, like the sphinxes on some chariot cards, with their black bodies and wings and white eyes. In addition to the bus, the train, and the school carriages, another mode of transportation Harry uses to play a game, his broomstick, is destroyed, and he gets a replacement, a firebolt, which is an incredibly appropriate name for a broom owned by Harry Potter with his lightning bolt scar. The new broom is hotly debated, with Hermione, backed up by McGonagall, convinced that it's from Sirius and therefore jinxed, so she's half right. Harry also rides Buckbeak the Hippogriff, first during a lesson with Hagrid, then to save Buckbeak and Sirius from the Ministry's version of Justice. However, the chariot isn't just about Harry's many journeys, literal and metaphorical, including his journey to understanding who he is and where he comes from. Sirius, also a metaphorically queer liminal being, travels home from Azkaban, back to being Harry's godfather, a role he would have filled at his friend's deaths if he hadn't gone to prison. And, like Harry, he also travels back to Hogwarts, his spiritual home. Sirius is metaphorically queer in his own family due to his ideological differences with them, but he's also a liminal being because he's an animagus. Another character linked to the liminality of the chariot is the werewolf Remus Lupin, someone who, rather than changing into another creature at will, like an animagus, becomes a ravenous wolf during the full moon, quite unwillingly. This works neatly with the sign of cancer being linked to the chariot card, since those born under cancer are called moon children. We can definitely consider Remus to be a moon child, regardless of when his birthday is. Other symbols on some chariot cards are wings and the Hindu symbols for the union of positive and negative, which is equivalent to the yin-yang. Sirius escapes from the Ministry's clutches on Buckbeak, another liminal being, and a mode of transportation, for Harry, Hermione, and Sirius, that is a union of opposites. Even Buckbeak's name speaks of his dual nature, since bucking is something a horse does, and a beak belongs to a bird. His later alias, Witherwings, also speaks to his dual nature. 
A wither is the ridge between the shoulder blades where a horse's height is measured, and wings obviously refer to another major anatomical feature of birds. The fear that a boggart feeds on is defeated by laughter, and the despair brought on by dementors is fought by hope, love, and thoughts of happiness. The chariot embodies these and many other dualities in the third book of the series, and takes Harry, the protagonist in this tarot story, to the end of the realm of the gods. The card linked to the chariot, card number seven, is the Tower of Destruction or the Lightning Struck Tower, card number 16, because one plus six equals seven. In addition to the firebolt being Harry's new broom, an obvious link to Harry's lightning bolt scar, in this book, the tower card can be linked to the literal tower from which Harry and Hermione rescue Sirius. This is what I believe makes the tower from which they're rescuing him lightning struck, since Harry has a lightning bolt scar. So like the inverted tower of the Chamber of Secrets, it is also a Harry struck tower. I talked quite a bit about the Wheel of Fortune card in the previous episode, which is fitting because the third book is the one in which Harry begins studying divination, lessons he attends at the top of a tower. He even has to climb a ladder to reach the top. Never let it be said that the architecture of Hogwarts is ADA compliant. This is also the residence of Professor Sybil Trelawney, her tower being a physical manifestation of her identity as an Axis Mundi, a link between worlds, an archetypal crone, as I talked about in episode 6, A Murder of Crones. She is also a genuine seer, though Harry and his friends scoff at her predictions. However, Harry isn't quite so sanguine about the predictions she gives during his divination final, about a servant of the Dark Lord returning to his master, which Harry initially believes means Sirius, though he later realizes that it refers to Peter. There's another crumbling quote-unquote tower in this book, accessed from underground, like the inverted tower of the Chamber of Secrets, the Shrieking Shack. A confrontation and a number of revelations occur in this virtual tower, which, like the Chamber of Secrets, can be considered inverted, with a meaning that seems to be the same in this book and the second, a time of change and upheaval that nonetheless ends well, which it generally does, with Sirius and Buckbeak rescued and the Dementors leaving Hogwarts. The only fly in the ointment is that Peter escapes, which makes it impossible to clear Sirius's name with the Ministry, and also leads eventually to the resurrection of Voldemort, a development predicted by Trelawney in her literal lightning-struck tower. Justice, card number eight, is the second sequential card for this book, and it's linked to a column card, the star, card number 17, because one plus seven equals eight. Justice is nearly always shown in a negative light in Prisoner of Azkaban, unlike when Harry embodied the archetype of justice and mediated between Dumbledore and Voldemort in the first book, as I talked about in episode 31. This reflects the up-and-down influence of the Wheel of Fortune card in this book, and that one of the characters embodying the star archetype, Sirius, gets short shrift in terms of justice. Harry tries to rectify this, helping Buckbeak and Sirius to escape miscarriages of justice, but Harry isn't the only one working on this. Hermione does research to secure an acquittal for Buckbeak, and when she's unable to continue, Ron picks up where she left off. All three are keenly interested in seeing justice done. Dementors are as blind as justice should be, but not in a good way, 
They don't care if they suck a soul from someone who's innocent. They are indiscriminate and unswayed by arguments about who deserves punishment and who doesn't. Buckbeak is also railroaded by the so-called wizarding justice system merely because Lucius Malfoy is friendly with the Minister for Magic. A time-turner looks like an hourglass and is about balance, since the sand can only go from one end of the glass to the other and back. Using the time-turner, Harry administers justice and saves Sirius and Buckbeak after hearing Lupin's and Sirius's testimony in the Shrieking Shack and having heard Pettigrew's side of the story. Harry, again embodying the archetype of justice, even offers a stay of execution to Peter. He wants to turn Peter over to the Ministry for a trial, perhaps sensing that letting Remus and Sirius murder him would damage them as well as Peter. He doesn't yet know about murder ripping a person's soul, but seems to know instinctively that it will change his father's best friends forever. He wants to protect them from the blowback that he expects to be the result of this vigilante justice. The third sequential card for Prisoner of Azkaban, The Hermit, card number nine, a wandering holy man or scholar, can refer to multiple people in this book, like the Hanged Man and Star cards. Harry is a candidate for this archetype when he's briefly homeless and must stay at the Leaky Cauldron. Sirius is in this role as a fugitive. He engages in a lonely trek to see Harry in Surrey, then goes north again to Hogwarts. Another archetypal hermit is Remus Lupin, who leads a lonely, insular life due to his lycanthropy, and has to lock himself up monthly to avoid hurting others. Plus, as a teacher, he also fits the scholarly aspect of the hermit archetype. The hermit is an archetypal holy man, one of the intercessor roles that Harry played in the previous book, Chamber of Secrets. He's again an intercessor in the third book, now for Sirius and for Peter. Sirius and Remus are also intercessors and holy men of sorts. Sirius is literally Harry's godfather, and Remus gives Harry spiritual tutelage that leads to his being able to conjure a Patronus to keep his soul whole and intact. The card linked to the hermit, number 9, is the moon, number 18, because 1 plus 8 equals 9. Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban is the book in which Remus Lupin is introduced. And Sirius Black, a dog animagus, is also a major part of the book and the other title character besides Harry. On a typical moon card, the most prominent creatures in the center of the card are a dog and a wolf, running and baying at the moon. In the foreground, a scorpion, or lobster sort of creature, emerges from a body of water, which happens to be the element of Slytherin House. This could point to Snape's pursuit of Sirius, even though he must settle for outing Remus Lupin as a werewolf instead. This creature seems to be creeping from the water to pursue the wolf and the dog, which is how Snape behaves in this book, creeping around trying to get dirt on Lupin, who he suspects is helping Sirius. This is also reflected in the incident from their youth, when Snape was nearly killed because Sirius lured him to the Whomping Willow when Remus was on the verge of transforming into a werewolf, before Snape's life was saved by James Potter.
To return to the third column of Tarot Major Arcana cards, the one aligning with Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, at the top of the column is the Empress card, number three, which rules the third book, and is the main link between the Horcrux aligned with this book and the Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher in this book, Remus Lupin. But all three middle books of the series, the third, fourth, and fifth books, also have five other alignments, for a total of seven each. The remaining seven alignments are, number three, each book has a non-Gryffindor house matched to its Horcrux, Ravenclaw, Hufflepuff, or Slytherin. Number four, the element for the house aligned with each book is important thematically in each book. Number five, there is a marauder who accompanies Harry to his death who's aligned with each middle book of the series. Number six, a member of the trio, Harry, Ron, or Hermione, is aligned with each of these three books. And number seven, there's a non-Harry champion who inspires jealousy in the trio member, that is the sixth alignment, during the fourth and central book in the series. Let's look at the Empress again. She wears a crown of stars, which is a kind of diadem, the Horcrux aligned with this book, Ravenclaw's diadem, whose story we learn in Deathly Hallows. This is the first of the seven alignments in this book, the Horcrux. Remus Lupin is the second of the seven alignments as the defense against the dark arts teacher for this book. He's also linked to the Empress's starry diadem, a symbol of her dominion over time and of women's monthly cycles, like Lupin's monthly cycle, which is also connected to the moon card, which is numerically linked to the third sequential card for this book, the Hermit, who, as I mentioned, is also embodied by Remus Lupin, as well as other characters. In addition to these connections, Ravenclaw's diadem is supposed to confer wisdom on the one who wears it, and Lupin is the first DADA teacher Harry has who actually teaches him useful things and is a credit to his job, in addition to giving Harry private dementor fighting lessons that impart wisdom to him about his fear of fear. Because Ravenclaw's diadem is the Horcrux aligned with this book, Ravenclaw is the house aligned with this book, the third of the seven alignments. The diadem was Rowena Ravenclaw's, but the Grey Lady, Ghost of Ravenclaw House, is Helena Ravenclaw, her daughter, who stole the diadem from Rowena, an archetypal empress and archetypal mother. Helena's romance with the Bloody Baron is also connected to justice, a key theme in this book, since it is the second sequential card and linked numerically to the star, the card at the bottom of the third column. The Baron killed Helena, then himself, and will forever wear his chains in penitence. The fourth alignment is the element for the house linked to this book, the element of Ravenclaw, air, as I've mentioned in episode 18, among others. This element is key in Prisoner of Azkaban on multiple levels. The backstory of the Diadem Horcrux is just one example of the importance of justice in this book, and this card, number eight, the second sequential card, shows a woman representing the concept of justice, holding scales. The justice card is also linked to the sign of Libra, an air sign. However, in a more tangible way, air is linked to how Harry carries out justice in this book, by flying through the air on a hippogriff to save Sirius. The element of air is even significant in minor details in this book, 
Of all the things J.K. Rowling could have had Harry accidentally do to Aunt Marge, for instance, she chooses to have him inflate Marge with air, so she rises up into the air. He plays a full Quidditch season in this book for the first and last time, and where does he play Quidditch? In the air. Another minor link to Ravenclaw and the element of air is that in his third year, Harry first notices the Ravenclaw's seeker, Cho Chang, during a Quidditch match, which is, again, played in the air, the element aligning with Ravenclaw and with this book. Over and over, this fourth alignment, the element for Ravenclaw, the house aligned with this book, plays a role in Prisoner of Azkaban and is tied to one of the most significant cards, Justice. Another link between the diadem and the element of air is that when the diadem is later destroyed, it's the only time in one of the seventh book's mock Quidditch matches when Harry rides a broom, as he would in a real match. Just as the only time Harry rides a broom while overcoming the obstacles to the Philosopher's Stone is when he tries to catch the flying key, the third obstacle, which happens to be the one created by Professor Flitwick, head of Ravenclaw, as I talk about in episode 16, The Seeker. So something that's close to Quidditch, which is played in the air, and which shapes the third book, is an appropriate end for the Horcrux aligned with this book, The Diadem. Remus Lupin, in addition to being the defense against the dark arts teacher in this book, is also the marauder who accompanies Harry to his death, which is the fifth alignment. Just as serious as Harry's godfather, Harry becomes godfather to Remus Lupin's son Teddy, orphaned in the final battle against Voldemort. Remus is the marauder whose mythic archetypes are the same as Harry's. He's an archetypal youth and a metaphorically queer liminal being. Remus and Harry were both attacked at a young age and changed by becoming a little like, but not completely like, the ones who attacked them, Fenrir Greyback, the werewolf, and Voldemort, as I talk about in episodes 8 and 9. Hermione, whose archetypes rule this book, both the archetypal mother and the archetypal empress, is the rather obvious member of the trio who's aligned with this book, the Sixth Alignment. In addition to Hermione being a near Ravenclaw, she reveals in Order of the Phoenix that the Sorting Hat considered putting her in that house, her counterpart amongst the champions in the fourth book, the one she's jealous of, is Fleur Delacour. Which brings us to alignment number seven, the three non-Harry champions. Fleur is from the pseudo-Ravenclaw school, Bobaton, as I talked about in episode 18. And Fleur will later wear a borrowed tiara, another type of diadem, at her wedding in Deathly Hallows to yet another character who, like Remus Lupin, shares the same mythic archetypes as Harry, Bill Weasley, who's both a youth and a liminal being and who's bitten in the sixth book by the same werewolf who changed Lupin. All of these alignments are easiest to discern through examining the tarot cards linked to this book, especially Justice, but also the cards linked numerically to both the sequential cards and the major arcana cards in the third column, the one aligning with the third book of the series, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. You've been listening to Quantum Harry the Podcast, a podcast version of the book Quantum Harry, A Unified Theory of the Potterverse by B.L. Purdom. All music heard on Quantum Harry is composed and performed by B.L. Purdom. Whether you're streaming on iTunes, Stitcher, 
CastBox, or another podcatcher, please leave a rating and or a comment and share episodes of Quantum Harry with your friends. Next time on Quantum Harry, episode 37, The Goblet of Memory, an examination of tarot symbolism in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. I hope you'll join me. Oh.